Emerging technologies are transforming the healthcare industry as we know it. Investors, say hello to HTech, a portfolio dedicated to capturing the significant growth potential of healthcare innovation. Learn more at roboglobal.com/htec. Emerging technologies are transforming the healthcare industry as we know it. Investors, say hello to HTech, a portfolio dedicated to capturing the significant growth potential of healthcare innovation. Learn more at roboglobal.com/htec. Welcome everyone to another episode of the NBA podcast. We're going to continue our division previews today with the Northwest Division, which quite frankly might be the best division in basketball, at least the most entertaining. Before we get underway, just wanted to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter at the NBA pod in our bio. You can find all three of our Twitter handles. So give us a follow as well. You can also find us on iTunes. So please subscribe, download, leave some reviews. We would love any feedback. And we're being hosted this year on FanRag sports. So check them out on Twitter at FanRag sports and for their NBA content at FanRag NBA. Joining me today, as always, are my two co-hosts, Morton Jensen and Sarah Chalea. How's it going? You two. I'm kind of sad, Brian, because I'm looking outside and it's it's turning dark way too early in the day right now. So, yeah. Winter is coming. Winter is coming and not in the good Game of Thrones way, just in the awful, sloppy you know, snow way. So get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back to school styles for kids and baby. Get flip flops for two bucks, graphic tees for four bucks, shorts for six dollars and jeans for eight dollars. Right now, get the best kids styles at kid size prices. Just two, four, six and eight dollars. Can't wait to wear it. Buy online and pick up in store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles. Now at Old Navy and Old Navy.com. Valid 729 to 811. Select styles excludes in-store clearance right yeah Yeah, Yeah, i'm I'm in nashville now so i I don't even remember what snow looks like anymore i'm excited Mm. yeah i'm waiting for my invite (laughs) yeah uh sarah how are things for you oh i'm just really excited waiting for morton's uh, biology anatomy take today so i can't wait (laughs) (laughs) yeah we've got some really spicy takes once we get to the jazz so we'll get there in a little bit. Joining us also is Adam Mares, the site manager of denverstiffs.com. Adam, how's it going? It's going great. I'm just back from Maui, so I am like recharged and ready for the season. Nice. Damn, I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm, I'm heading there in a couple months for my cousin's wedding, so you'll have to give me some recommendations Absolutely. where to go. Um, before we get underway, just could you let our listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and where else they can find your work? On Twitter, I'm at Adam underscore Mares, M-A-R-E-S. And then I run DenverStiffs.com, the largest Denver Nuggets blog on the web, and host Locked On Nuggets, part of the Locked On NBA Network. Very good. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm sorry that I butchered the pronunciation of your last name, but God did not grant me the ability to roll my R's. You're fine. You're clear. It was, it was okay. It wasn't the worst I've heard. There we go. That's all I need. (laughs) That should be the tagline of this podcast, frankly. (laughs) Uh, All right, let's get underway. Let's start with your Denver Nuggets. Uh, We got a lot to talk about there. I want to start with the holy war that our friend of the podcast, James Holis, has been on all offseason about Nikola Jokic. For whatever reason, NBA Twitter and the blogosphere has decided to basically coronate Jokic as a star already and 
Uh, our buddy James is having no part of that so far. So ESPN and Sports Illustrated recently released their top 100 rankings for the season. ESPN ranked him as the 16th best player ahead of guys like Gordon Hayward, Damian Lillard, Mike Conley. Sports Illustrated had him 25th. So, Adam, you've had a chance to watch Jokic more than the rest of us. Do you think, are, are we crowning him too early, or does he deserve this lofty ranking already? I, I mean, this, there's two important caveats I have to start with, and one is that I am driving the Nikola Jokic bandwagon, so I'm not exactly an unbiased uh, perspective here. And the second is that I think player rankings are the death of joy and the dumbest exercise in all of basketball. There's no, I, I mean, you can talk, I think, I think it's more fruitful to talk about the best player of all time or the best player of a generation. Like there is something to be said of that, but when you're talking about the 16th to the 25th best player, I mean, at a certain point it loses meaning because you're talking about how hard is it to build a contender around this player. Um, and I think in the case of Jokic, if we just go off of that, I think he's probably a top 25 player, 16. You know, maybe he's that high. I, I don't I don't I don't think it's wise to kind of give him that much due this early because that sets an expectation. <laughs> you know, that puts mm -hmm. more pressure and. and and I think people will be slower to come around to him. But uh, he's a, an incredible player, and the thing you have to know about him is that every single player on the Nuggets, when they were on the court alongside him, improved. And the Nuggets, mm -hmm. as, and, and in most cases, pr improved significantly, more than you see with, you know, you're talking about the Nuggets who for four straight months had the best offense in the NBA, and they started one of the ten worst players in the NBA in Emmanuel Moutier. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these, this was a team that was like 20th in offensive rating before he became the starter. And we can talk about some of the stupid reasons that he wasn't the starter. But once he became the starter, <laughs> they went from 20th to number one and they held that for four months. It wasn't a, a hot month or a hot six weeks. It was, you know, 15 weeks straight of it. So I think he really is a player that has a skill set that makes your offense automatically good. And I think his defense is massively underrated, although there are some serious issues to it. And so in that regard, I don't I don't I think he's a pretty easy player to build a contender around. And in that regard, maybe he's one of the 25 easiest players to build a contender around. That's that's probably how I would phrase it. I like that way of looking at it more, because especially because, as you said, like between 16th and 25th, we're looking at razor thin margins here. Right. Like yeah. the gap. The, the numerical gap makes it seem bigger, but we are just splitting hairs like all oh, these guys are excellent. Um, but the way, I mean, the way I'm seeing it is like, you know, when I, I do a lot of fantasy basketball stuff for Fansided now, um, and like Jokic is, he's going to be an early second, if not late first rounder, but like for fantasy basketball, you have to project out for the entire season. So like Jokic might not be a top 20, 25 player right now, but by the end of this season, I expect him to get there. So that's, you know, I don't know if that's the rationale ESPN Sports Illustrated, all these places are using. Like if they're ranking it based on how they expect these players to be at the end of the 2017-18 season, or if they're saying like, no, Jokic is already better than Davia Lillard today. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fair to say that, as you said, these are all just really dumb rankings and they're all great players. What's going to happen this year, and, and it's one of the reasons I'm sort of dreading this season and I've had so much fun the last two seasons with the Nuggets. They've been in rebuilding. You know this from Philadelphia. It's sometimes fun mm -hmm. to watch 
these rebuilding processes because you see the hope and there's no pressure and all these things. This year, I think, is going to be really annoying because for Jokic fans, <laughs> I think he's going to surpass or meet their expectations. For Jokic haters, he's going to fall short of those same expectations. It's going to be the same season. He, everybody's going to be watching mm-hmm. the same thing and seeing different things. And it's unfortunate because he's such an entertaining player. I wish that we could all collectively enjoy it. but And maybe we will. I really do think basketball Twitter is this very tiny percentage of basketball fans and it seems like there's this more polarizing opinion about him than most casual fans i think most casual fans quite frankly don't know or don't care who he is right yeah i I completely agree with that i think that will hopefully change this year because i mean the nuggets are going to be more competitive at least it looks like they will be than they have been the last couple years so you know you, you have to assume especially come late in the season casual fans will start turning tuning into nuggets games to see what the hype is all about uh, but that actually leads me to my next question, which I'm going to send to Sarah, our noted big man expert. So, <laughs> uh, Sarah, you know, they, the Nuggets last year had Yusuf Nurkic starting alongside um, Jokic for the first month or so of the season. Mike Malone quickly realized that didn't work out. Benched, he first benched Jokic, which was. Uh, that's something. But then he quickly realized that was a mistake, put Jokic in the starting lineup, benched Nurkic. Nurkic got grumpy, got traded. So they, they suddenly had a hole in the front court. They addressed that this summer by signing Paul Millsap to a three-year, $90 million deal. How perfect of a fit is Paul Millsap next to Nikola Jokic? Pretty perfect, yeah. the uh, All the misgivings that I had about uh, Dwight and Cody Zeller fitting together. Mm-hmm. None of those apply here. <laughs> yeah. uh, these guys are not limited to operating in the same areas of the court. Um, they're both pretty versatile players. They're both good passers. Uh, both guys can step out. Like I said, they're, they're capable of doing it. For for Kixies, I went back and watched Paul Millsap dropping 32 and 13 on the Spurs. So that was fun. <laughs> Got a good array of just everything that he could do. And it's going to be a lot of fun. You know what I really love about this division is they have two teams now with two top 10 post-up scorers Mm. all of which have a hundred or more possessions of of post-ups so to me that's my in my opinion that's bringing sexy back more than justin timberlake (laughs) ever could i'm very excited um i don't care what the rest of nba casual fans want to (laughs) see we need to trend back that way a little bit so i'm fired up uh but we'll get to the other two later but yeah denver now Jokic is third best uh, most efficient scorer in the post and Millsap is ninth they're wow. both good role men there's just they're gonna have so many options now and and hopefully on the other hand too Millsap will help shore up the defense even a little more you know he's mm-hmm. versatile on that end as well so uh, i can't foresee anything but good <laughs> coming out yeah. of that yeah, I mean, I think the versatility for me is what's going to clinch it for both of those guys. Because, like, bo- I mean, Jokic is not an underrated passer. Everyone knows how good he is. But Millsap's, like, a pretty underrated passer. Like, he he can definitely make things happen for teammates. So, like, I don't know how you guard both Jokic and Millsap. When, like, what do you do in a Jokic-Millsap pick-and-roll? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't even think that's my favorite thing with those two. I think the favorite, my favorite thing, is going to be just some of the high-low entry passes for post-ups because both guys are really good mm-hmm. at burying their guy under the rim, you know, rim running and things like that. And they're both really good. And this is a skill that actually, surprisingly, not that many bigs 
or even wings are good at is just throwing that quick pass into the post when a player only has one second. You know, you can pin a guy for one second before he fights over, and you got to find that window. Mm-hmm. They're both really, really good at that. And to Sarah's point about them being third and ninth in post-up, I think more than anything, they're good at picking their spots. I think DeMarcus mm-hmm. Cousins is a better post-up player. If they just played one-on-one in the post, DeMarcus Cousins would, would beat both of those guys. Same with Carl Anthony Towns. The difference is as a team, you know, through the coaching staff, but also I think just the players, they pick, they know when they have a, a, a favorable uh, positioning or favorable matchup in the post, and that's the ones they try to exploit. When it's 50-50, they got a good defender who kind of pushed them out of position. They don't force shots. They just say, all right, let's find something else in the offense. And to me, it's just like shot selection. Post-up selection is so important to becoming an efficient player, and both of them are so good at it that I just don't think you're ever going to watch and be like, man, they're really forcing post-ups right now. They just don't do those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's going to be interesting because, as you mentioned, Adam, they, you know, their starting point guard for much of last year, Emmanuel Moutier, struggled badly. He, he showed a little bit more this summer, so the hope is that he will not be a total bust. But – they he might showed, be he a team. showed more this summer in the the Africa game. Is that is yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. All right, yeah, right. I, I mean, <laughs> not exactly the most. <laughs> I, I was thinking I missed something. I was like, oh sweet, he showed. Nope. Oh, that's right, the, Africa, <laughs> the scrimmage, yeah, one so exhibition good. game. But I mean, frankly, that's like you need to try to find silver linings because there haven't been much these first two years. But yeah. it, this team could be one that operates because Jokic and Millsap are both such good playmakers. Like. They might not need a full-time ball handler like a Chris Paul. So more, you know, they've got Jamal Murray, who can kind of play both roles. Like he's a kind of a combo guard, can be a point guard, can be a shooting guard. Do you think, because of Jokic's passing talent, do you think Murray is kind of the point guard of the future they need? You asked me that question about a month ago, and I was skeptical. I'm not skeptical anymore at all. Um, Jamal Murray is a supercharged, super-powered, prime Derek Fisher, but with higher potential as well. So he can play off the ball a lot, and and his shooting ability is fantastic. And he's a sneaky good a- a- athletically as well. Like That was a, a knock on him coming in. Uh, he wasn't this elite, super-athlete. But, I mean, I, I saw a fair bit of him, and he's got plenty of speed and plenty of hops so i'm i'm not really that concerned about it especially offensively defensively he has some ways to go but he was 19 1920 i mean who doesn't at that age but yeah offensively speaking i think it would create a lot more symmetry for the whole team uh, you can have a, a lineup of jokic and Millsap, and then wilson chandler can even handle the basketball as well so mm-hmm. him just feeding off of all that attention and just draining corner threes give it to me baby <laughs> yeah, it, re- it reminds me of like what Milwaukee's got going with Malcolm Brogdon and what they originally before Brogdon with Matthew Delvadova, where it's like mm. you have a nominal point guard, but you're running offense through a big more often than not. So like it's more important that your point guard can shoot versus yeah. operate as a playmaker. And Moutier can't shoot as of yet, so you know he could be a gifted passer, but it doesn't matter. Um, but that actually leads me, Adam, to my next question because, you know, more I said, you got Wilson Chandler at three, you put Murray at the one. That leaves Gary Harris at the two. Gary Harris is entering a contract year. He was a, he broke out as a sophomore and then kind of, I don't want to say stagnated, but like didn't drastically take another step forward as a junior. 
So what do you think the Nuggets do with Gary Harris? Do you think they extend him by the deadline, which I think is in mid-October, or should they let him test restricted free agency next summer and see how he improves this year? I, well, first of all, I think this will be answered within the week. They're going to extend him. Um, but I'm going to... Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I'm going to to kind of disagree with you on, on your assessment of him. I think he made a huge step forward in year three uh, as to year two. The points per, per, per game didn't go up at uh, three points, which, you know, mm-hmm. he made a big leap in his sophomore season. But last year, the three-point shooting from 35% to 42%. And on mm-hmm. higher volume, four and a half attempts per game, he was one of the most efficient high volume three-point shooters in the league last year and he's another guy this is why i think there's some ways i think the nuggets have have kind of screwed up we're going to get to some of them here i think very very soon with like the Plumley <laughs> stuff but there's some ways where i think this team is really 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 well built offensively i talked about Jokic and Millsap, Millsap not forcing shots gary harris is first team all don't force shots he takes what <laughs> what, what comes to him and that's to me, that's maybe the most undervalued offensive talent to have in the NBA is just stay in your lane, do know what you're good at, and, and try to find opportunities to do that. He's a great three-point shooter when he's open, and he, he takes shots when he's open. He doesn't when he's not. He, he's a tremendous cutter, Dwayne Wade-level cutter, where he just finds seams, and, and he creates maybe six, seven, eight points a game for himself just off of great cuts. And when you have a player like Jokic, if you're a great cutter, you're going to get wide open layups. Those two are, are on the same wavelength, and, and they're just a phenomenal pairing. So I think that's what he got better at in year two was just understanding what, you know, eliminating all of the bad possessions. He's not a superstar talent, but he just does, he's just good for 48 minutes. And then the other mm-hmm. thing he added in the last couple months of the season, and I, this is where I'm more skeptical on him. I think he's probably closer to his ceiling than, than most players his age. But towards the end of the season last year, he started and, uh, taking over some point guard duties or de facto point guard duties. He started playing the pick and roll as the ball handler uh, a lot more, and he did really, really well at it, to my surprise, because I just don't think of him as a guy that can create offense for a team. But he started to do that. He had career highs and assists like six different times. He just kept you know, getting better and better as the year went on. <laughs> I think he had like 10 assists at the, in one game at the end of the year. So if he adds more of that to his game, then I think he's going to be you know, a top six or seven shooting guard in the league. Uh, if, if he doesn't, I think he's just going to be an incredibly valuable role player. The Nuggets are going to probably pay him somewhere in between those two expectations. Yeah. Do you, so what do you think? You sound very certain that they are going to extend him. What do you think is a fair value for him? Four years, certainly. I think, uh, you know, I'm bad at this kind of stuff, quite frankly, trying, trying to guess. I think the Plumley contract coming in really threw me for a wrench because I thought he was a $10 million a year max you know, player. And to Denver, maybe even less because he was going to be on such a diminished role. They're paying him 14. Well, what does that make Gary Harris worth? Gary Harris is significantly mm-hmm. more important than Mason Plumlee. He's gonna, Gary Harris is going to play 34 minutes a game, be your starter, guard the best backcourt player on the other team. Plumlee is going to play 20 minutes max and, and be very unimportant. I think he's probably worth in the 18 to 20 million a year range for over four years, which is a pretty hefty price tag. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's reasonable. I, you know, if Kent Bazemore got 470 last year and Evan Turner got 470, like, I'd much rather have Gary Harris than either one of those guys. And uh, Tim Hardaway Jr., Victor Oladipo, mm-hmm. uh, can, uh, KCP, who I think is maybe his best comp. Um, these guys are all getting paid. And I, I know you can't compare it because the last couple of years have been different than I think the upcoming years, but 
he's going to probably be paid in the same range as a lot of those guys. Yeah, I mean, we've talked in re- past episodes about how kind of the the crunch is coming. It started this summer and for next year, especially like free agents are going to find that they aren't. They just teams don't have the cap space to give them the big contracts that guys got in 2016. But I, I feel like if the Nuggets did decide to let him test restricted free agency, he's one of the rare guys where I think there would actually be a market for him. Like, I think there would be more of a market for him than there was for KCP. So I think it, it would be smart for Denver to re-up him now. Um, the interesting thing about him, though, I want to say one more thing, is that he is a perfect fit with Nikola Jokic because he's such a great cutter and shooter. And I do wonder, if you put him on Charlotte, for example, a team that doesn't mm-hmm. have a ton of spacing, and, and what would he become then? I, think, I don't think he would be a very good player at all. So I think his, mm-hmm. he's a player whose value is specifically good to Denver and might not be that good on the restricted free agent market, even though I think teams won't realize that and they would probably overpay for him. It's a good point, yeah. Yeah, teams would definitely overpay for him. But yeah, whether he returned value on that uh, is another question entirely. But before we move on from Denver, I got to ask you, you know, you brought it up already, but the Plumlee deal came in earlier this week, three years, 41, 42 million, somewhere around there. 41. Uh, 41. What? What's Denver doing with that? What's up? So Denver brought in Paul Millsap, who I think is the number that's the best free agent acquisition, maybe in Nuggets history, quite frankly. It's not a very long list of great players that have chosen Denver. Everything else they've done this season does not make sense to me one bit, including this. Nobody was bidding against them for Mason Plumley. We saw that nobody offered him gave him an offer sheet. I think if you look around what if he would have for you know signed a qualifying offer and played out this year that would have worked in Denver's favor because now they have a really cheap guy that you know if they lose him whatever um, you can always find a backup center or you know somebody to play those minutes and if you do think that somebody's going to go and offer him a contract it's probably in the ten million dollar range eleven million dollar range fourteen million a year just doesn't make sense to me this was a huge misstep in my opinion. I don't think he plays more than 20 minutes a night. In a playoff series, I don't think he plays more than 10 minutes a night. And you're paying him as one of the top players on your team. It, it doesn't make sense to me one bit. Um, I, I'm pretty disheartened by it, quite frankly. The big question is, is it going to be tradable in a year or two? It's right mm-hmm. at that line where maybe a team will get desperate enough to, to want him. But we talked about value as in how hard is it to build a contender around I think it's really hard to build a contender around Mason Plumlee. If he's your if he's your center, you have to have like the four perfect players on your roster in order to make up for him. You got to have like Anthony Davis next to him at power forward. You know, I mean, it's, it gets really really difficult. So I'm not in love with that signing one bit. Yeah. Do you think it signals you know once the Harris deal kicks in and then Jokic is probably going to get a new contract next summer? Do you, so? Do you think Denver has a salary dump trade coming up? I think there's no question about it. I can't imagine Kenneth Fareed being on this roster. I I kind of think he'll be traded here this week. I think there's probably yeah. something in the works right now. I don't he has to know. Kenneth Fareed um is a guy that you know, he sees the writing on the wall. He looks around and says, "Oh, okay. I see three guys that are going to be getting minutes. Where do I fit into that?" He has to know and he's not the kind of guy that I think you risk coming into training camp with an unhappy guy because a lot of the young players look up to him. And he's a guy that's not afraid to voice frustration and become a distraction. So I mm. imagine that he is on the way out. Yeah, that it seems that way. And 
it really it goes back to the even in the draft it's like why did they trade down and go for Trey Lyles if they're gonna have this big front court glut already why not just take Donovan Mitchell at 13 my my hunch was that move was with the assumption that they were getting Kevin Love in a trade that that's uh, my hunch and and so mm-hmm. when that backfired is every the reports have come out that there was kind of the agreement and everybody was kind of drawing up the paperwork mm-hmm. when it was rescinded. Um, so I think Denver was operating under an assumption that fell through. Interesting. Yeah, that, that would make sense. I've also seen that they were supposedly hot after OG, who went one pick before to Toronto, and then right. they kind of had to scramble. All right, let's move on to the Minnesota Timberwolves. And more. this is going to be... A lot of you, because it's <laughs> basically the Chicago Bulls. All the best parts of the Chicago Bulls are now on the Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, starting with Jimmy Butler. You know, we talked about the big trade earlier this summer, but I, my big questions about Jimmy Butler is, one, is Tibbs going to actually play him 48 minutes a game? And two, uh, what do you expect from him now that he's back with Tom Thibodeau? Well, I'm not even going to dignify the first one with a reply <laughs> because when if you if you were a head coach who actually got decent players to to play, you wouldn't be forced to play Lou all day and Derrick Rose <laughs> and Joakim Noah that, the, that amount of minutes. So uh, I, I think that perception is just weird. Um, how he will fare in Minnesota, I've, I've got on the record before and I'm going to do it again. I think he's going to level up one more time and enter MVP candidacy. I, I think it's in him. I think he has that tenacity. He's definitely hungry after getting out of Chicago. And I know that he he's going to share the floor with, with Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins. And his stats are probably not, his raw stats at least, they're not going to be that huge. But, I mean, Steve Nash's weren't either in Phoenix when he was playing alongside Sean Marion and Amari Stoudemire. So uh, I, I have a feeling he'll be the engine that's going to make this whole team go. And I think they'll make the playoffs and not mm-hmm. like in the eighth seed. I think they're going to make a fair bit into the playoffs. So um, him being reunited with Tibbs and Taj Gibson, at least mm-hmm. we forget, uh, is going to be huge for him. And uh, I, I expect a tremendous year from this guy. He's one of, he remains one of the most underrated players in the NBA for some reason. Well, that reason being the Bulls, obviously. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it it wouldn't be, you know, if they went from, like, what, they had 31 wins last year. If they jumped from, like, 31 to 50 or 55, that, you know, even if you didn't have the best per-game statistics of any player in the NBA, like, mm. that would make a pretty convincing NBA ca- or MVP case. So I don't think you're totally, you know, I, I don't think he's going to enter the year as the favorite or even oh, in no. the top three or four, but, like, if you're looking for a dark horse MVP candidate, Jimmy Butler is a very good place to start. Um, Sarah, I'm going to go to you with this next one. As our renowned big man expert, Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, turns out he's very good at basketball. I remember two years ago there was a debate about whether Carl Anthony Towns or Jaleel Okafor should be number one overall. There is no longer <laughs> a debate about that. Uh, so what do you expect from Towns in year three? And do you think he is the highest upside big man in the NBA today? <laughs> I kind of hate that question just because I don't want to be forced to pick one or the other. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, there's so there much upside choices. out there. Yeah, right now with these young bigs, it's, it's thrilling. But hey, <laughs> it's hard to argue against him, that's for sure. Uh, just as skilled as you can be. Um, 
just watching him work out. I got to do a little bit last season, just watching him before games. It's just smooth as can be. You know, it's pull up, turn around, and he's only going to get better. Um, I know that there have been question marks on defense. That's probably the biggest question right now. And that's what you hope to see improvement on this season, uh, especially in a second year with Thibodeau. And as Mort always points out now, you got Taj there too mm-hmm. next to him. Um, Jimmy, of course. So yeah, that's the big hope that there will be some kind of leap on that end. But as I mentioned before, with the uh, you got two guys on this team as well that are really, really good at post-ups. Yeah, they actually have two top five guys. Jimmy's fourth, Cat's fifth. Um, just, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fun. The, the pick and roll that those guys can play together. And then I want to move forward into Jeff Teague as well, because I know that's a signing that didn't elicit a lot of excitement, which is okay. Um, but I was trying to look into the numbers and I found some reasons to be cautiously optimistic. Um, Jeff Teague did shoot pretty well on catch and shoot threes last season, at least, at least respectable. I think it was like 37%. Um, so there's reason to hope that, you know, he can share pick and roll responsibilities with Jimmy. Jimmy's a terrific pick and roll ball handler as well. He doesn't need to do that all the time. And then he can hopefully benefit from, like we talked about this, this cat and, and Jimmy pick and roll that's going to require a lot of attention. So mm-hmm. he can kind of stand out there, catch and shoot. Hopefully as long as he accepts that role of, you know, not necessarily needing to be the ball handler all the time. There's reason to believe that it could go well. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I did want to address the Teague thing, and we can jump right into that. So, you know, they traded Ricky Rubio right before free agency began um, and then immediately signed Teague. So they basically were, I mean, they got like a, I think, a lottery-protected 2018 pick for, for, for or from Utah, but it's via OKC. So not like, they basically gave Ricky Rubio away. Um one would assume it's because they were concerned about spacing, especially with, you know, Butler, Wiggins are not, they, they can hit threes, but they are not high volume, efficient three-point shooters. The same, you know, Towns was probably their best <laughs> three-point shooter in their starting <laughs> lineup right now, which doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. So, um, Adam, I want to throw this one to you. Do you think Teague is going to be a better fit in Minnesota than Rubio was last year? Um, he'll be a better fit based on the team that they have. So I, I, he's a better fit for the team they have this year. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm not a big Teague fan. And I was a big Teague fan for one year, I think, back in 2013 or 14, when I thought he was on the way up. But I think actually he kind of is the same player. I think that team is going to struggle with shooting in a way that Teague isn't going to really be able to alleviate. I don't think he's the kind of guy that changes the gravity of a, of a game and opens up the paint. If he's open, he'll knock down that shot. If if he's he's but he's not going to create openings for everyone else on the team. And uh, I, I do like this team. I think they're going to be great. I agree with everything everybody's been saying about Jimmy Butler. I don't know if he's underrated or maybe it's just the circle, the bubble I live in, but I think he's rated (laughs) pretty highly and probably properly so as like this top 10, maybe, maybe even higher top five player. But um, I just think that team lacks spacing. Tibbs doesn't seem to value that with any of his teams, quite frankly. And they real they run a very, in my opinion, boring style, both in Chicago now and in Minnesota, very boring style of basketball to watch that is probably going to, to work in the regular season. 
and it's probably going to be pretty boring to watch, unfortunately, because there's a lot of really interesting players. Wiggins is fun and exciting. Towns is fun and exciting. Jimmy Butler. I think all three of them are going to be taking turns posting up, and and <laughs> and that can be that that can be a bit of a of a slog to watch. I think. You're, but good. You just described Sarah's dream. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I like because I like I, I'm a I'm six five. You know, I'm a big guy. I, when I play basketball, I'm usually inside. I enjoy the post game. But I enjoy the post game as this tool of like spacing the court and creating mismatches in one on one. And I think the style that Tibbs plays is more of this almost 1990s style where you post it up. You just kind of go strong at the guy who's guarding you. And and to me, that's actually pretty boring to watch is it's not there's not a lot going on as an analyst. I'm not breaking down like all these cool things that are happening. It's just, oh, yeah, there goes Towns really forcing his way to the basket again. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I mean, spacing is definitely the biggest concern I have about this team going into the season. And like, you know, like you and Sarah have said, I do think Wigan or sorry, that Teague is a better fit than Rubio for this core because he's a better shooter. But, you know, like there isn't a single above average three point shooter in the starting lineup, assuming Gibson is the starting four. And yeah, they have Jamal Crawford off the bench, but he's like 37 years old. And if you're relying on Jamal Crawford as your best three-point shooter, that's scary. So, like, you know, I think this team, as you said, Adam, is going to be effective in the regular season. I have concerns once the playoffs begin. They have a lot of time to fix that and address that concern heading into the trade deadline especially. But uh, the, the big the big X factor for me is Andrew Wiggins. So they're, he's reportedly like on the verge of signing his five-year, $148 million or whatever max deal that's been sitting on the table for three weeks. Um, we've talked in past episodes about kind of the, the should they max him, should they max him, and then once he got the max, like we, we were concerned that Glenn Taylor, the Timberwolves owner, like went to the media and said, you know, we want to max him, but we're concerned and we want to have a face-to-face with him and we, we need his commitment to continue improving. That sort of raised red flags for me at least. So Adam, what do you think, what do you expect from Wiggins this year? Do you think he starts to round out his game or is he really going to just be this like one faceted scorer and that's really all he does? I think offensively that's all he is and that's I think what he's going to be. I think on a different team, he would have developed some different characteristics. Uh, he's a good his, – his cut numbers are really good. All athletes that cut that are, you know, long and athletic that cut really finish really, really well. It's just underutilized in this offense, and I think it's going to continue to be under underutilized, his off-ball uh, potential. Instead, what will be utilized is his one-on-one scoring, which is good but not, I don't think, horribly efficient in aggregate. The one thing about him, though, is the best – big is going to be guarding towns the best wing is going to be guarding jimmy butler he's likely going to be guarded by the team's third best defender on most nights and he's already a really good he was guarded by the best perimeter player last year he's i think he's going to get a lot of mismatch opportunities and then the height you know jimmy butler's a tall guy wiggins is a tall guy i think there's going to be a lot of nights where a team just doesn't have a guy his height that can match up with him denver for example some night they have wilson chandler but if wilson chandler was out you know gary harris will barton might be guarding him that's 40 pounds of muscle and and four inches of height that you're giving up he's going to eat those guys alive so i think there'll be a lot of nights where that happens but overall i think he is who he is he'll just be in more favorable matchups night in and night out this year 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm hoping to see him develop more as a playmaker. Like what you know, Jimmy when he came in the league didn't have that reputation either, and he's rounded it out over the past five years. So I'm hoping that with Jimmy as his mentor, like he finally <laughs> this past year was the first time he had more assists than turnovers. He's been in the league for three years, and that's you know that that was a concern dating back to his days at Kansas. So I'm I'm hoping you know he hits the glass a little harder. Like I'm thinking because. He's going to be able to preserve a little more energy on offense. He can dedicate himself to other facets of the game. But, you know, I think Minnesota was right. You, If you're Minnesota, you have to max him because you're not going to replace him. You don't have the cap space to do it. You're not going to find a player as talented as him with that space that you will have. But, like, I, you know, I think it's fair to be concerned that, you know, maybe he does top out as not – the like franchise cornerstone that you were expecting like yeah sure you can score 25 points a game but if he's like averaging four rebounds and one assist like you want more from him i agree completely i think he's a player i would not i'm glad i'm not minnesota because he's a player that i don't think is worth anywhere close to that he is worth it like he's a star Mm -hmm. for whatever that means and people like him i just don't i think he's actually hard one of these examples of a player that's hard to build around um, mm-hmm. because of his style and what he's good at. Um, now, if you give him Jimmy Butler and Towns, you're going to have a good team. But, but <laughs> okay. I, but I don't know that he's the third wheel of a of a championship team. Interesting. Yeah, it's going to be. I mean, if nothing else, it's going to be really fun to see how the Timberwolves coalesce this year and with all their new pieces. Let's move on to another team that made some big changes this offseason: the Oklahoma City Thunder. Mort, the Thunder did what the Bulls couldn't and stole Paul George for absolutely nothing. Or mm. depending how you feel about Victor Oladipo, no, they still <laughs> stole him for absolutely nothing. Yeah. They got him for only Oladipo and Demontis Sabonis. So now he's already talking about, quote, going after that hardware. Do you think he could emerge as a legit MVP candidate? Oh, I mean, he would have to play consistently throughout the year first instead of having these hot starts and then sort of becoming, you know, leveling out over the last two months of the season. He has to stay with it. I mean, and and he has to put up huge numbers, at least in OKC, because he only has that one guy alongside him. He can't take on like a complete backseat here. He has to be the pseudo Kevin Durant to Russell Westbrook's, well, MVP. Um whether he can do that, not sure. I, Russ is overwhelmingly dominating at this point in time. He's also probably going to build on that momentum of getting the MVP last year, trying to prove himself one more time, I could imagine. But if not, I mean, then sure, he's got the talent for it. I mean, he's got the versatility. He's a 6'10 freak athlete with deep range, great handles. He can pass, he can rebound, he can defend. I mean, there's nothing he really can't do. It's just a question of putting it all together. Like, he's... He's sort of like Wiggins in the sense, just more accomplished in the in the sense that he has so much potential to him that you kind of feel when you watch Paul George that he's leaving something on the table so often. That feeling has to go away for him to get any kind of hardware. Do you think playing next to Westbrook will help him in that regard? It's the best player he would ever have played alongside with. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to open up a lot for him. And he's probably going to – I could imagine his, seeing his three-point attempts go up significantly and maybe his free-throw rate is going to decline a little bit because Russ is so dominating inside. Um, 
so it comes down to is, does he have a hot year or not as well. So that's going to factor in. But yeah, I, I think he's he's probably going to have a lot of uncontested jumpers more so yeah. than before. Yeah. So yeah. He, he's going to make use of that. And then I would probably stagger them a whole lot so he could mm. have a tendency to, or so he could have an opportunity rather to uh, be the the number one guy with with a bench unit maybe. So you have a cons- you consistently have an all star presence on the floor who can create a double team and kick it out or you know get thirty. Yeah, with all of these teams we're talking about, really, like it's a lot's going to come down to the creativity of the coaches because like mm. all of these teams have enough players that you should never have a unit without. If you're Minnesota, there should never be a time where you don't have Towns, Butler, and Wiggins on the floor at one time. Like one of those three guys should always be on the floor. Mm. Okay, see. I would say Westbrook or George for all 48 minutes should always be on the floor. And when Scotty Brooks is the coach in OKC, like he had Durant and Westbrook for years, and there were times where they wouldn't have either guy on the floor, and they got blown out in those couple minutes, and then yeah, they would run them both back, and then you know that was an issue. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Billy Donovan juggles his rotations. Um, Sarah, <laughs> I'm going to ask this one for you. I'm going to give you a break for the big men, and I want you instead. To have to sing the praises of rightful MVP Russell Westbrook. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> the man, cruel. The man rightful. who deserved yeah. the MVP over Kawhi Leonard, among others. Um, so, you know, he, he put up the first triple double season in the last 50 years last year. Uh, you know, just one of the most unbelievable night to night performances in the NBA. Like, it was just every single night you knew he was getting at least 30. There, you know, late in the season, it was like, okay, he's getting fifty every night. What do you think he has in store for an encore this year? I don't really know, you know, what partnership I'm more interested in in watching, uh, either Chris Paul and James Harden or Paul George and, and Russell, because you know that's that they both have this potential to be at least somewhat contentious, which I actually. Mm-hmm hope doesn't happen it's just a part of me that kind of roots for it but not really (laughs) um i'm very interested to see because yeah i mean in theory russell's not going to have the type of year that he had last year which should be a good thing um you know he doesn't have to do everything this year um and you wonder you know maybe did that see of course it, it ended up giving him an mvp out of the whole thing but do you want you wonder if maybe this will give him more appreciation for having that guy on the wing that he can rely on a little more. Um, I, I'm hoping so. Um, but but the fact is, the guy is, as we know, just an explosive athlete. He's freaking unstoppable when he gets in the paint, except for he's not a great finisher. So the main thing that I actually want to see him improve is is finishing. He can't. You can't really stay in front of him. You know, he gets in there. Um, uh, but I want to see him consistently finish, and hopefully he and him Paul George develop this this nice rapport. But um, I'm interested to see how that goes. It definitely definitely has the potential to be a little shaky. Yeah, and like Minnesota, like OKC is a sneaky bad shooting team. Mm-hmm. Like oh, Russ oh, is, yeah. and it's Russ not is, even really sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, yeah, Russ is a below-average three-point shooter. Paul George is average at best. Like, Andre Roberson is an awful, just an awful, awful, awful shooter. So, like, it's going to, you know, if Russ is collapsing and running into the rim and Paul George tries to cut his way to, like, for an easy assist, like, 
they don't have a guy who I guess Doug McDermott like is who I'm most confident in on that team to hit you know be open on the weak side if Russ gets double teamed or something. But it that that's definitely a concern for OKC. But I I mean I, I for Russ I'm expecting you know luckily we've seen him with a high volume wing scorer before so it's not like we we don't have to completely conjecture like and just say you know th- this guy is gonna put up the same numbers I, I think he he'll go he'll still be in the high 20s I think his assists will still be around 10 per game his rebounds will go down a little bit but I, you know I, I would not be surprised if he has another MVP caliber season even though his per game output will decrease a little bit um, Adam I, I want to ask you you know outside of Westbrook and George the Thunder are kind of actually lacking a third reliable scorer or just reliable option. Like, Roberson's good on defense. Ennis Cantor is good on offense off the bench. McDermott, who knows? <laughs> He's a good three-point shooter, I guess. Um, but Steven Adams, it, in the 2015-16 playoffs, he had a great postseason. It looked like he was about to be like one of the next big things at center in the NBA. And again, I don't want to say he stagnated last year, but, you know, last year was, you know, KC, it was the Russ and Friends show. Like, everyone just took a backseat to Russ. So do you think Adams has the potential to develop into kind of the third member of OKC's big three? No, and I think, but I don't think it really matters. This idea of a big three you know, it's kind of a recent idea, right? It's really the last like half decade that we've been talking about teams with, as as a big three. They have a phenomenal one-two punch in Westbrook and Paul George. Uniquely great. I mean, I think only a handful of teams have two players that that dominant. And I think they have an incredibly well-rounded roster. I really like their starting five. I think that Adams, Andre Roberson are two really high-level role players. And the difference between a big three. And, you know, a, a role player or a member of a big three and a role player is can they step outside of their role? And I don't think Steven Adams can. I don't think there's ever going to be a point where it's like we need Steven Adams to step up and win this game for us because Westbrook and Paul George don't have it tonight. That's not mm-hmm. going to happen. I think what happens is Steve Adams is going to do his job 99% of the time and do it really, really, really well. And you know what you get. Roberson's going to do his job 99% of the time. You're going to know what he gets. I think and so. So I don't think those guys can step outside their role and, and win games for you. But I do think they fit together so nicely. And you mentioned the spacing last year. It was a problem. And I think in in part at least because of the style of of the one-man show that they they put on with their offense last year. But this year I actually think they have pretty nice spacing. Patrick Patterson is a phenomenal addition to this team and an an incredibly underrated addition to this team. The spacing that Paul George and Patrick Patterson alone, just those two guys are going to provide you. And then obviously Westbrook has this tremendous amount of gravity because he's just so quick and so dominant. Maybe not shooting gravity, but gravity as in you can't just leave him to get ahead of steam. You have to stick close to Mm -hmm. him. So I think those three guys are going to space the court well enough. Uh, Steven Adams is so strong that if you don't box him out early, he's going to get the offensive board. So I think think they're going to be a tremendous team. And the way I look at it, they were a league average offense last year. They were the 10th ranked defense. Well, if you swap Victor Oladipo, who's a great defender, but Andre Roberson now moves to shooting guard and Paul George slides in, I think that's a move up. Patrick Patterson mm-hmm. replacing Sabonis, I think that's a move up defensively. I think this team has the makings of a top-five defense in the NBA, and I think they can get there. I, I, I think they will be that this year. Offensively, you looked at 16th last year. 
I think they can probably move to somewhere around top 10, top 12 offense uh, this year with the addition of Patrick Patterson and Paul George. I'm very high on the Thunder. I think they're going to be a phenomenal team. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Patrick Patterson because I, I do want to ask about him too. I mean, he was – he kind of – as you said, he's like – I don't think they're ever going to ask him to take over a game. It's, you know, if Westbrook and George are out, you know, it's not going to be like, all right, Patrick Patterson put up 30 points. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But I do think he's a really valuable role player um, and is going to be a welcome addition to this team. So more – what role do you see Pat Pat playing this year? Uh, probably a spot-up shooter from the corner. He really liked that corner in Toronto. Um, he, but he's also physical when given a chance. Like He is a guy who can go to the basket at times and just use his, his bulliness. And when that is you know, needed out of him, he can do it. It's not like they go out of the way to use that because in Toronto they have DeMar, they have Kyle, they have guys that could do that role. But... Um, I, I am, I'm sensing he's gonna, probably going to up his three-point attempts a lot more, and they are going to be open. Lord knows OKC needs it right now, so I think he's probably going to be not pigeonholed into that role, but I, I think he's going to fill that need. Whether he's going to be like a their third scorer, not sure, but it really doesn't matter. As long as he keeps being this outside presence that, need, that keeps teams in check and open striving lanes, that's all they really need from him. So... I'm expecting, you know, the eight or nine points that he can offer on good, on good to solid, solid to good percentages. Um, that's really, I mean, that that's all you can ask for him at this point, which is a lot when you look at the makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a reasonable expectation for him, and that you know he's replacing Taj Gibson, who was a valuable member of that team after the trade deadline. Um, you know, I, again, Taj Gibson was not a guy who's going to put up 20 points, 10 rebounds a night. It's like, play good defense, put up 10 and 5, and we're good with and that. And Tosh had spacing issues. Pat yeah, doesn't. Right. So that's, that's a huge plus. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, wait, is this the year McBuckets turns into McBuckets in the NBA? <laughs> Here's the thing. When, you're, <laughs> when you are a three-point shooter and you are traded for Gary Harris and Yusuf Nurkic... <laughs> And you come into the league as this, you know, three-point shooter. It might be a good idea to actually take three-pointers. <laughs> Not sure that makes sense, but yeah, yeah. that yeah, would be I, a start. Just take threes, Doug, instead of take, <laughs> you know, faking once and then taking that one hard dribble into a pull-up from eighteen feet. Just, just don't do that, Doug. Take the three. It's there. It's a three-point league. It's unbelievable that he doesn't have a higher three-point rate. Yeah, I forgot that Denver was the one that ripped you guys off. I feel like Adam owes you apology at some point. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry, you guys? Not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Good point. Yeah. Thank you. All right, let's move on to the Utah Jazz. Sarah, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Rudy Gobert, probably now... Kawhi Leonard's one of his fiercest competitors for defensive player of the year put up career best numbers last year really came around offensively late in the year too which I think was a surprise like he had a couple games where he had like 30 plus points after the all-star break which I didn't really see for him uh at least you know based on his 2015-16 season which we all thought was going to be his breakout season and then he didn't really break out then so Gordon Hayward's now gone. Do you think 
Rudy Gobert is their number one scorer? Do you think he can develop into like this two-way all-star? Or do you think he's still going to make his name on defense and you're getting like, you know, at best 15 points a night from him? He, he's certainly still going to make his name on defense. That's that's number one for him. But there is some potential there. Like he's not exceptionally polished and skilled offensively, but you're talking about an elite pick and roll roll man. He's 95th percentile. And you're bringing in Rubio, who, who can hopefully help give give him a few more possessions. He only had 2.5 possessions, really, of that per game last year. So I see that bumping up right away. You're also talking about a guy who averaged, what, 13, 14 points and only took, I think, seven shots a game. So, yeah, I think the addition of Ricky immediately, you know, you could bump that. I could see him being a 20-point-per-game scorer. I don't see why not. Um He's definitely got that potential. Like I said, he's not going to necessarily uh, wow you with his post moves, although when you're that tall, <laughs> just turn around and shoot the hook or, or dunk on people, you know. So that potential is all there. So, yeah, I actually wouldn't be surprised if he scored 20 a game. But his, his main focus is, yeah, lockdown, be a rim, protect, rim protector, and uh, that's he's going to fill that role. Yeah. Do you think uh, Rubio is actually a better fit in Utah this year, I knew you were going to ask boy. me that. And you know that's not fair. Um, and your boy George Hill. They're different, right? I, I think they're going to miss what George brought more than some people realize. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, George wasn't able to stay on the floor a lot, especially toward the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they noticed it then. I mean, the length and the defense that he brought. Of course, Ricky can defend a little bit as well. Uh, George could stretch the floor more than than Ricky, but. Yeah, I, I can't say that I think he'll be a better fit, but I do think he'll do wonders for for uh, Gobert in particular. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's why I'm really confident and really high in Gobert going into the year for the reason you said. I just think a, a Rubio-Gobert pick and roll is going to be really, really hard to stop. Like, you're, you're going to go under on the screen, but, like, Gobert is still a seven-footer, and he's surprisingly nimble seven-footer, so, like, I, you know, I, I just I think, think he's going to find those angles. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Like he's such a good passer that I, I think Gobert, this is the year where Gobert really becomes more known for than just for his defense, in my <clears throat> estimation, at least. Um, Adam, so they lost Gordon Hayward, and there's no way, you know, no matter what, that's going to be a setback for this organization. Like you don't lose a guy in free agency who was your. 20 point per game like primary score and you know just bounce back and forget it ever happened but they do have a bunch of good wings uh you know they've got they have seven-time all-star joe johnson for one they have alec burks who's been in and out of the lineup the last couple of years but rodney hood is the guy who it seems like they're pinning their biggest hopes on uh dennis Lindsay has said he, he thinks he can turn into an 18-point-per-game scorer. He's kind of in the same situation where Gary Harris is. Like he's, They're going into a contract year. Both guys could be on the precipice of a huge breakout. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, they might want to sign him to an – or they probably do want to sign him <laughs> to an extension before that happens. Um, do you think Rodney Hood can make Jazz fans forget about Hayward? No, I, I like Rodney Hood quite a bit, and I think he's going to be a really good player. I I think these things, 
I think we always ever overestimate the leap it takes to go from the second option to the number one. I think he, I think the he's going to have the opposite of Andrew Wiggins, right? We just talked about how Andrew Wiggins is now going to get the third best defender on the, on the team and, and all, all these things. Rodney Hood's now going to get the best defender on, on the team mm-hmm. most nights, and that's a big jump. So asking him to increase his output – maintain his efficiency or improve his efficiency all while going up against you know tougher defenders and carrying a bigger load i think he will get there eventually and be a pretty nice i think he'll continue to improve as a player but i think this is the year where he kind of takes a step back before going a step forward because he has to learn he's got to learn to score against lebron james i mean that's who's going to be guarding him you know kevin durant those those are tough assignments and then you think about all of the guys he's going to have to guard on the other end. I know they have I, – I'm, I love Joe Ingles. He's one of my favorite players in the league. Cephalosha, really good defender as well. But he's going to have to start out a lot of matchups against Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, these guys that are tough to guard and exhausting to guard, and then go on the other side and, and take over. I think that's tough. But where I like this team, sometimes you a, a team learns how to be more balanced offensively out of necessity because they don't have an alpha scorer i don't think on this team they're going mm-hmm. to have to rely on execution quinn snyder is a coach that worships ex- execution and balance so i think this is kind of a roster that fits him nicely uh, that you know they're going to need to be this high execution offensive team if they're going to be a playoff team and i think they're going to realize that really quickly and then you mentioned the the Rubio Gobert pick and roll, which I think I think will be good. Although there are some spacing issues there that I think teams will exploit. Think about the defensive potential of this team for the mm-hmm. the one five pick and roll. You know the staple of a team's offense in the NBA for almost every team is the one five or one four pick and roll. Rudy Gobert and Ricky Rubio are probably the two best at their position at guarding those, or at least two of the top three at the position at guarding pick and rolls, or at least stymieing the pick and roll. You can drop Rudy Gobert back and protect. Ricky Rubio's so good at fighting over the screen. He's got those long arms. Joe Ingles, the same thing. He's a phenomenal pick and roll defender. Derek Favors, when healthy, is you know he's a really, really he's really mobile for his size, and he he does a good job of hedging on screens and getting back. I think this team is going to be a nightmare to score against, and I just think their defensive potential is number one in the league. I think they could be the best defensive team. Certainly, I think they'll fall in the top five defensive uh, defensive rating. I just think offensively, though, is where this, they're they're a year away from being adequate. Yeah, I mean, they were the number three defense last year. You know, Hayward is actually a, an underrated defender, I would argue. He's yeah. better on that end than his reputation would suggest. But as you said, swapping out <laughs> George Hill, who's also a decent defender, but Rubio is better on that end. Right. Uh, they, they didn't get a lot out of favors last year, so knock on wood, he'll stay healthy this year, and you can get a little more out of him. And then, Mort, they added your boy, Donovan Mitchell. They did. <laughs> What role do you see him playing aside from being Rookie of the Year, All-Star, and MVP, of course? Thank you, Brian. (laughs) Uh, Well, given that they lost Hayward, I think he's going to get a lot of offensive opportunities as well as coming in. I think his his defense is NBA-ready as is, uh, which is only – it only furthers Adam's points, really. I mean, you're adding a rookie who is already an NBA-level defender to the mix. That's just going to – I mean, make them even better. Offensively speaking, that's where he's still developing and evolving. However, he took a significant stride from his freshman to sophomore season at Louisville. 
Um, he's a tireless worker. His three ball is looking really, really good. I mean, that stroke is is consistent and it is effective. So I suspect with alongside Ricky Rubio that he's going to get a lot of open shots. He's going to get the opportunity to establish himself offensively almost right off the bat. So that's that's huge for him going forward, and that's huge for him, especially for the Roy chances. Mm. Would you like to grace us with your the biological hot take that? All right, so here it is. Here it is. It was because you know you had you you always write these outlines, and one of them said Mort's inevitable rant about how great Donovan Mitchell is. So yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) So I decided to look at what people were saying in regards to why he should fail, and the only thing I saw was oh his lack of height. Mm-hmm. There's really not a whole lot of blowback to his still developing offensive side. It's mm-hmm. all about oh he's so short he's so short. Even right. the people he, disregard six him. three. He's six, listed as six yeah. three, and he's but he's right. got like a six ten wingspan and he's athletic, so it's not right. really that big of a, you know it doesn't really make that big of a difference. And then I started thinking back to guys. Yeah, you can laugh away. It's fine. I started thinking back to one of Sarah old old guys, Dewan Blair for the Spurs who came into the league listed at 6'7", but his neck was so short that his shoulder height was similar. <laughs> yeah, you laugh away. That it was similar to someone 6'8", 6'9". Like, you don't play you don't play basketball with the top of your head. You just don't. So I just kind of looked at his shoulder height and thought, you know, Gage, does he have a tall neck or not? And he, Donovan Mitchell, that is. He doesn't. So I'm putting a lot more stock into shoulder height than I am listed height. So I'm not saying, oh, Donovan Mitchell is is six eight. Not saying that, but he might seem, you know, be six five in terms of body. Yeah, he, he yeah. has the frame of a six five player right, rather right. than a six. Thank you. Yeah. English <laughs> still second language. Right? I can't wrap my head around it. I just keep imagining players being measured headless. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Look, we should have that additional measurement. I mean, look, I brought up an example to you guys before we start recording. Um, an old Cleveland guy, Martinez Andrescovages, who's listed at seven three, and I, he has the longest neck and longest <laughs> face I've ever seen of any basketball player of all time. Like I am absolutely certain his shoulder height would be to similar to someone six nine or six ten. Definitely not someone seven three. So I I think it matters. There you go. Yeah. So- Remember that everyone when Donovan Mitchell wins Rookie of the Year, it's because he's yeah, really that's a six because, five right, player, right. Let's let's body. let's ignore the skills. That's why. Yeah. It's because... <laughs> All right, let's move you on. You are to the a last... huge troll. You are. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. won't deny that. Uh, let's move on to the last team in this division, the Portland Trail Blazers. They're really the only team that didn't do much this offseason, and that's because they couldn't because they spent like drunken sailors last offseason. Uh, their one big move really came at the trade deadline when they traded Mason Plumlee to the Denver Nuggets for Yusuf Nurkic and a first-round pick. Um, so Nurkic played incredibly well upon his arrival in Portland. It was a, <laughs> a complete revelation based on how he ended his time in Denver. Uh, he suffered a leg injury late in the year, hobbled him throughout the playoffs, but he's supposed to be ready to go for training camp. So, Sarah, what do you expect from Nurkic this year? Do you think his hot play after the All-Star break is sustainable, or was it just a small sample size fluke? 
I'm not going to say that what he did was unsustainable. I think he averaged 15 and 10, shooting 50%. I think Nurkic can do that again. Now, do I think the team success will continue along that rate? Probably not, considering they went 20 and 6 with him in the lineup. So, no, I don't think they're going to win 77% of their games. (laughs) But uh, I do expect Nurkic to have a good season. I think he almost seemed like he had new life, just, you know, getting out of Denver, getting to start fresh. Portland loves the guy. Um, he's been working out like a madman, it looks like, over the summer. So I think he's ready to come back and bring what he brought at the end of the season for them again over the entire season next year. But obviously, they're not going to have the same type of team success. Yeah, I'm just, I'm still so pissed at Portland because I correctly pegged them to be a crap team last year and they were a crap team up until the trade deadline and then they got Nurkic and like snuck in to not being a terrible team. And I was very upset about that. But Adam, would you care to weigh in on Nurkic having (laughs) the experience of him for a couple of years in Denver as well? I don't think Nurkic's success in Portland was a surprise to Nuggets fans. I mean, the guy was really, really good. Uh, his rookie season, which was the year before Nikola Jokic's rookie season, he was he was everybody's favorite player on the team. Similar, we all had Nurk fever here in Denver, um, mm. just like Portland does. He got injured at the end of the year. It was supposed to be healed over the summer, but for whatever reason, I don't know, it, it wasn't. And it took an extra like three months into the season for him to get right. In that time, Nikola Jokic was even better than Nurkic was as a rookie and everybody kind of moved into rooting for him. I think that really soured him and he beca- and he started pouting. Last year, you know, you, we talked about that we alluded to it earlier that Jokic was coming off the bench. Well, the reason for that was because Nurkic threw such a fit about it that the, mm-hmm. that Jokic actually volunteered and said, "You know what? The only way to resolve this is for me to come off the bench. I don't care. Start him if it'll make him happy and and we'll all just try to make him happy." Well, of course, the Nuggets were horrible when he was on the court. He moped up and down. He gained 30 pounds. And the Nuggets finally cut ties with him and, and just started and just started playing Jokic and not playing him at all. Uh, at that time, he was throwing fits and, you know, going on social media to bash the coach and the organization. So I think all Nuggets fans knew, like, man, this guy's a good player. This is like a dangerous, you know, proposition getting rid of this guy because he's so good. But you know it was so clear that things were gone so i think i think he's going to have a phenomenal year i think he's going to have a better year i I think he's going to have the same like statistical year as he did last year for portland um but i think the impact might even be greater this year as he kind of figures out his role there even even more and they kind of learn how to how to use him a little bit better so i i think that's a perfect fit i think it's a perfect big three where they all three fit really really well together and i think portland is going to be a dangerous uh borderline playoff team at worst yeah i mean i didn't look into the numbers too much but i remember after he arrived it just seemed like based on the eye test dame and cj were getting a lot more open looks because like he set some really bone crunching screens and they just didn't have that guy like no offense to mason Plumley, but like nurkic was better in that role than Plumley was so it yeah. seemed like Dame and CJ were just getting open more than they were earlier in the year and I think that's going to help them get going this year um you know now that they've had a full offseason training camp preseason to get him integrated into the system as you mentioned like it's it's often hard for guys I mean you know Nurkic isn't like a high usage player like DeMarcus Cousins so it's not like Portland didn't have to reinvent its offense like the Pelicans did when they got boogie 
But, like, it's still hard for guys to just, like, pick up a new system on the fly. So I think, you know, having the time is going to help him a lot. But, but this is where this is where buy-in is such an important thing because for whatever reason, him and Malone were not on the same page. And Malone, mm-hmm. I think, you know, kind of just gave up on him. He was the highest usage player on the team in Denver for the first month of the season. Like he just when he mm-hmm. was on the court, everything ran through him. When he went to and I, my thought as a reporter and even talking to him was, that's how he wanted it. And he was unhappy when the team wasn't passing him the ball and this or that. He goes to Portland and he's the third option and as happy as can be. And so there was mm-hmm. a there was a disconnect there somewhere, whether it was between the coach and player or just the coach and other players on the team. You know, something like something was going on with him here in Denver that is no longer going on with him in Portland and I don't know if that's indicative an an indictment on Denver and the coaching staff and the organization or if it's an indictment on Nurkic and we're all waiting for things to go south for him to kind of for his attitude to go south again I don't know the answer to that I honestly don't I'm not trying to bash the guy but he is clearly a a refocused more more um, unselfish player now in in Portland than he was in Denver yeah, there. I mean, there definitely is some interesting blow-up potential there where, you know, if things go sour to start the year for whatever reason, like, based on what happened with Nurkic in Denver, it will be really interesting to see, you know, he's heading into a contract year, so he's got to be on his best behavior. But, you know, if, if for whatever reason his attitude goes south again, it'll be really interesting to see how Portland deals with that. Uh, more, I want to ask you... You know, last summer we were recording, I think uh, we recorded the first day of free agency. And mm-hmm. right after we stopped recording, we saw the Twitter timeline. Evan Turner got a four-year, $70 million deal. And we were like, God damn it. Why did we stop recording? Because our reaction <laughs> was just so... I, I think I, I basically shrieked. <laughs> I was just so horrified by how much money he had gotten. Um, you know, that... He was very mediocre in his first year in Portland. Uh, for a lot of the year, he had one of the worst plus-minus ratings. Like I think Matt Moore of CBS Sports is tracking that for much of the year. Like he had the <laughs> league's worst plus-minus. He he started to pull it out uh, toward the end of the year. Now Portland had to cut costs this summer, traded Alan Crabb to Brooklyn for absolutely nothing. So Evan Turner. You know, he has less competition for minutes now on the wing behind Dame and CJ. Do you think he starts to resemble the player that he was in Boston? Or do you think that's just going to be a sunk cost? Probably a sunk cost because he needs the ball in his hands to be productive. And, you know, every every measurement or statistic out there suggested that he just did not get the ball more than he did uh, in previous years. I mean, he he was limited to being mostly a spot-up shooter. He took a career high in threes per, on a per-minute basis. His assists went down. Uh, rebounds went down. He, just, he was away from the play a whole lot. And with Nurkic now having a whole full training camp as well and being the third option, a lot of shots is going to go into him, at least a lot of possessions are. So now it's going to be three guys taking away shots and opportunities uh, for Turner. So you have to use him as a sort of pseudo point guard for this to make any sort of sense, which he really isn't. Uh, He can handle the ball as a wing, but he's not a guy who can run the offense on a full-time basis. So I'm... I mean, he could have a fine season, like it's a respectable season, if he plays to his strengths. But like, when he when is that opportunity gonna arise in this system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because 
because CJ McCollum is so good with the ball in his hands too, yeah. it's even like it's the same thing I talked about earlier with OKC. Like there should never be a time where both Dame and CJ are off the floor. And if that's the case, like one of those guys mm. ideally is going to be the primary ball handler. I guess if Dame's off the floor, you can run a little more offense through Turner because. I mean, both Dame and CJ are good spot-up shooters. They're both good shooters in general, and Turner is not as much. So, you know, it it could be similar to, like, the Ben simmons Markel Fultz thing in Philly. Like, you want to put the ball in the hands of the worst shooter so he has places to pass it to for catch-and-shoot attempts. But, yeah, it's it's hard to be super optimistic about... I mean, even if Evan Turner... I, I should phrase it this way. He's probably going to have a better season than he did last year because it can't get much worse, but he is not going to return positive value on a four-year $70 million deal. There's almost right. no way that happens. I, I, I do have a question for you guys because I, I don't remember who wrote it. It's months ago. Uh, someone on Twitter said, you know, here's a thought experiment. Evan Turner has a four. Like him as a power forward in that system because he can handle the ball. Like sort of a low-key Draymond-esque type of role. Would that work? I'm... I'm personally not sold on it, but I, it, I'm slightly intrigued just mm-hmm. to see if that could open some things up for him. If they somehow get a shooting shooter in at the three spot, then you'd have Dame, CJ, the, the small forward, and Nurkic can at least hit the mid-range shot. So you would have some available spacing for Turner to do his thing. Mm. I mean, that actually leads into my next question, which I'll send to Adam. So, Adam, feel free to respond to Mort's idea of of, uh, of Turner at the four. But then also, Portland got two front court players in the draft this year. They traded up from 15 and 20. They packaged those to the Kings to go to 10. Took Zach Collins from Gonzaga there. Also got Caleb Biggie Swanigan, I think, at 23, somewhere around there, late in the first round. Um, so do you see either of those guys playing a factor in this front court rotation this year? I don't, I don't really see either of those guys being a big factor at all. I, I like Swanigan. I'm not so high on Collins. Um, and I thought Swanigan looked pretty good. And from what I saw of him over the summer, but, um, I think to, to so I don't think they're going to be a big, a big piece of the puzzle. I think, I, I think some of the other guys in the front court will be, be more important to Mort's point about Evan Turner. I'm not. The problem with Evan Turner is that, for one, I don't know that he creates this efficient style offense, and you have an incredibly efficient offense with Damian, CJ, and Nurkic. And this kind of goes back to the Oklahoma City thing, which is when you have your, your the meat and potatoes, everybody else needs to be a side dish. And Evan Turner is like mm. a really crappy main course. <laughs> so I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that he fits in with, with, with what they're doing. It would be much better if he was just, you know, an elite wing defender or a, a elite spot up shooter or one of these guys rather than this kind of jack of all trades type thing. And then lastly, the last thing I think about Portland when I look at this team this year, everybody is at a risk for injuries. This team is uniquely, I think, at risk for injuries because there's four players that are irreplaceable on this team. Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum automatically. Who's backing them up? Uh, Shabazz mm-hmm. Napier, Archie Goodwin. I mean, there's nobody behind them. There's a huge drop-off if one of those guys gets hurt or in foul trouble or whatever. Al Farouk Aminu is the only guy that can kind of make this more of a small ball. I think he's the one that optimizes their lineup. He's irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. If they lose him, they have this clunky front court for 48 minutes and then obviously Nurkic who Nurkic has been hurt every three he's been in the NBA for three seasons he's missed 
pretty pretty significant amounts of time in all three of those seasons. He's pretty irreplaceable at this moment. I think Myers Leonard's just not up to the challenge. So um, this is a team that if they if they have this health luck that they had three years ago, where they had the same starting lineup for like eighty of the eighty two games, if they have that kind of injury luck, then I think there's no question they're a playoff team. If they have above average. Uh, injuries to to those guys or even average in, uh, injuries to those guys i i think they probably missed the playoffs interesting yeah that's a good point about their depth and that leads me to my last question sarah do you think dame and cj are enough to take this team to the playoffs let's assume you know uh, let's assume they avoid like catastrophic injuries so like they play at least 65 games each do you think that's enough to get them in I don't really. I, I put them right on the cusp of possibly slipping into to number eight, but no. I mean, if you if you're really gonna make me pick right here and now, I say no. I don't think they get in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's go right into that then. The, the predictions for the division. So how we see it shaking out one through five? Because uh, this is actually, I would argue this is probably the toughest division to rank yeah because like you know there's just there was so much overhaul of every team but portland and even portland we only got 20 game sample size of the nurkic blazers who were just totally different than the other blazers so mort i'll start with you how do you think this division goes well i think the nuggets are gonna have the best offense in the league um oh wow yeah, I, I'm I'm dicking the Millsap Jokic pairing, and and as we talked about with Murray becoming that pseudo point guard, if he does, like if they run with Moutier for the vast majority of the time, then maybe not. So, <laughs> and then you have the polar opposite in Utah, who's probably going to be have, have the best defense in the league. But I mean, then you have have to ask you yourself in regards to Denver, how good are they going to be defensively, and with Utah, how good are they going to be offensively, and I'm just seeing a higher ceiling with Denver than I am Utah right now, so I'm probably gonna put them. I'm I'm actually th- I think I'm gonna put them first. I think they're Den- gonna have Denver a, first. Yeah, I think they're gonna put Denver first. Yeah, and then Minnesota right behind, then Oklahoma City because I'm not sold on just having those two guys. I think like that, that the same logic as Adam applied to to Portland with one guy going down like that mm-hmm. applies the same as, as OKC. If, if you have just one of those two guys go down for a significant period of time, I mean, there goes your season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then probably Portland and then Utah to round it oh, out. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh, Adam, how about you? I'm pretty different. So I think Oklahoma City is by far the best team in this in this division, and I think they're going to be a top three team in the Western Conference. I think they're the only oh. team that has that kind of upside of the of the lot. Um, so I'm going to put them number one. I think obviously injuries to Westbrook I think would be catastrophic, but I think they could even survive a Paul George you know missing missing two three four weeks or something like that. So I'm going to put them number one by a wide margin. Minnesota's number two for me. Um, they're they're the the second most talented team I think, and even though the fit doesn't work, they're gonna play. They're gonna defend I think much better than they did last year, and they have enough kind of finishers on the roster that they'll be good. After that, the next three teams are all really really close for me. 
Um, I think Denver has the highest upside of those three, and so I'm going to put them there. I think Denver's a playoff team this year. Um, it probably as high as a six, anywhere from six to eight, I think is probably where they'll be slotted in. I don't know that they'll have the best offense this year, but I do think it'll be a top five one. Um, get, losing Gallinari is going to hurt their offense, and I think I think getting Millsap will will help mitigate the loss on offense and improve the defense. It's a net positive. But Gallo really unlocked a lot of the lineups that they were able to be just phenomenal at. Wilson Chandler, Gallinari, Nikola Jokic as your 3-4-5. There was nobody in the league that could match up with that combo. There was a mismatch somewhere every single time down the court. They won't have that same luxury this season, but I still think they're going to be a very, very good team. After that, I think I've switched. I think I, I used to be Utah and then Portland, and now I think I'm Portland and then Utah. And I think both of those teams will be really, really close. I think they're going to finish somewhere between 8, 9, and 10 in the, in the Western Conference. Um, and, and I'm not sure if, if at the moment if either of them will get in, but I'm going to p- give Portland a slightly better chance. Okay, good. Uh, Sarah, how about you? Yeah, this was definitely the toughest division. Uh, I actually had OKC on top as well. So I think perhaps even... Patterson can unlock some more versatility for them that they didn't quite have. I, I think he, it's probably not too much of a reach, I hope, <laughs> to say he could play some stretch four for them even a little bit. So um, that's a whole different lineup for them. And their defense didn't even really need that much help. So that's going to be really interesting. Um, the next two shuffled for me and then the final two shuffled for me. But if I'm going to close my eyes and pull the trigger here, I think I had Denver second as well. Um, I just offensively I really like what they have especially adding Millsap um, I think they unlock some stuff towards the end of the year that they can even mine more with Gary Harris and Jamal Murray um, you know let's go all in on running stuff through Jokic and let's run these guys off all kinds of baseline curls and and handoffs from Jokic in the high post and there's a lot of potential there uh, I think their defense is going to be a little better and their offense is going to be really good again Although Adam makes a great point about losing Gallo, who, who really is an underrated player in the league, I think, because he's on and off the court a little bit. and You know, maybe people aren't paying enough attention to Denver. But um, So then I had Minnesota third. Um, I'm just a little worried about their offense. They have so much more talent now, mm-hmm. but just kind of the way they ran things last year did not inspire a lot of confidence in me. So I would put them right in the middle. And then, yeah, the other two, I, I flipped around a lot. But I think I have to go Utah, <laughs> then Portland. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, come to the dark side. That's right. So <laughs> I, for me, I mean, I kind of think this division is going to be like three of the teams are comfortably in. I think Denver, Minnesota, and OKC are comfortably in, barring catastrophic injuries. I think it's going to be like they're the four, five, and six seeds, basically. So I'm actually, I was not on the Timberwolves bandwagon last year. I thought they were too young. They would take a year, they'd need a year with Tibbs. I'm all aboard this year. I think they really go to a 50 win team this year. So I, I've got Minnesota number one, OKC two, Denver three, Utah four, Portland five. But I, again, it's like Portland and Utah, you're, it's just, Super close. I think either of those teams could make or miss the playoffs. And then for again for Denver, Minnesota, OKC, it's like I really think those three teams finish right next to each other in the standings. So 
This is not meant as a slight toward any Denver fans out there. I think you guys are going to be very good as well. Um, Mort, how many teams from this division do you expect to make the playoffs this year? Three, probably. Um, yeah, Denver, Minnesota, and Oklahoma City. And then Portland on the bubble. That's reasonable. How about you, Adam? If I go down the list, I, I go Golden State, Houston, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, Minnesota, Denver. And then after that, it's just, I mean, honestly, I think it's going to be within a game or two. I do think a fourth team gets in. That's probably Portland. Um, I don't know who I'm missing. That's a, that's kind of a surefire. You got Memphis, New Orleans, the Clippers, Utah for one last spot. Probably the Clippers get the edge on that one. So I'm going to go with four. Mm-hmm. With yeah, Utah I don't being think, the lone team out. Yeah, I don't think there is, after those six, I don't think there is like another sure thing. I think those two spots in the West, seven, eight in the West, are very much up for grabs. Uh, what about you, Sarah? How many teams do you think are getting the playoffs this year? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely make an argument that, that they could all get in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they will. But <laughs> um, yeah, but for me, it's between three and four. Yeah, I think. I feel like the Clippers are going to get in, but, you know, if something happens to Blake, I don't think they can overcome that as they have in the past. Mm-hmm. I'll say four. I'm going four as well. Yeah, I think Clippers seventh, Utah eighth, and then Portland like ninth or tenth. I think I have a sneaky feeling Dallas isn't going to be as bad as everyone's expecting, but that's for another day. Uh, all right well thank you everyone to tune again this week uh adam thank you for joining us can you remind our listeners again where they can find your work and where they can find you on twitter yeah denverstiffs.com if you ever want to read about the nuggets that's the place to go you can listen to locked on nuggets uh on itunes stitcher wherever and follow me on instagram at, or jeez instagram I'm, i've been pushing <laughs> the stiff instagram for like a month so i keep saying the twitter at adam underscore Mades. Nice. Yeah. Hey, hey, if you want to plug your Instagram, if people, if you want to show like good, good dog pics. Yeah, that's I was gonna cool say too. it's like baby pictures. Really, that's all there is. So, yeah. <laughs> not interesting for you guys. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you again for joining us. Definitely, everyone, give Adam a follow because the Nuggets are gonna be a fun team to follow this year. So you should check out DenverStiffs.com. In the meantime, uh, reminder to follow us on Twitter at the NBA Pod. You can find all of our Twitter handles in our bio to so give us a follow as well. You can find us on iTunes, so please subscribe, download, leave some reviews. We would love any feedback. We're being hosted this year on FanRag Sports, so check them out on Twitter at FanRag Sports and for their NBA content at FanRag NBA. Until next time, I'm Brian Taporic, and I was joined by Morton Jensen, Sarah Chalea, and Adam Maris. Have a good one, everyone. You too. You too, Brian. Get to Old Navy for the biggest sale of the year. Up to 60% off all back-to-school styles for kids and baby. Get flip-flops for 2 bucks, graphic tees for 4 bucks, shorts for $6, and jeans for $8. Right now, get the best kids' styles at kid-size prices. Just 2 4 6 and $8. Can't wait to wear it? Buy online and pick up in-store free today. Up to 60% off all kids and baby styles now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 729 to 811. Select styles. Excludes in-store And now, an ad from Dad. All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. 
That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.